Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Derek Bailey. Derek is a software developer and entrepreneur based in Waco, Texas. You can read his blog at DerekBailey.com, watch his screencasts at WatchMeCode.net, and follow him on Twitter at Derek Bailey. I should mention that for podcast listeners, that's D-E-R-I-C-K-B-A-I-L-E-Y. You can also hear Derek on the Entreprogrammers podcast, amongst other podcasts you can find at Entreprogrammers.com. Derek is the author of four LeanPub books, Building Backbone Plugins, Six Rules to Master JavaScript's This, RabbitMQ Layout, and RabbitMQ Patterns for Applications. In this interview, we're going to talk about Derek's um, career, his professional interests and projects, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience using LeanPub um, and other self-publishing activities that he's engaged in. Um, so thank you, Derek, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I've been a longtime fan of LeanPub and am really quite excited about the opportunity here. Thanks. Um, uh, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in software development. You know, what was your first experience with a computer and what's been your path um, to where you are now? Yeah, so that that's a that's a three hour conversation in itself, honestly. Um, for, for this, you got to go back to the stone ages of, of, uh, computing in 1988 when my dad brought home a Commodore 64. Um, it was, a it was at, at the time, not the latest and greatest by any means, but it was uh, basically something that his office gave to him because they had a bunch of them sitting in a closet and he brought it home and I plugged it in and my mom found a uh, programming Commodore 64 basic uh, book and a, a shoebox full of disks. Got all of this from a garage sale for like a dollar. Brought it home to me and I just, I, I couldn't stop. The, the, from the moment I opened that book, that first Commodore 64 basic book, I just, I couldn't stop. So I, I've been writing code since 1988, um, doing it professionally since it depends on how you define professionally getting paid to do it since the mid nineties. Um, and then as a full time job, um, certainly since, since my, my first day out of, out of college in the, in the late nineties. Um, but I've been getting paid to do it since the, the mid nineties. And what did you study in college? Uh, audio engineering, actually. Okay. <laughs> I was, I was a, uh, sound recording technologies, uh, major. I, I, got burned out on computers when I was in high school because I had taken literally every computer class that my high school had to offer. I was actually a computer lab technician for my senior year. I, I was a computer a teacher's aide during my senior year, helping other students learn how to program. I was doing self-directed studies um, for my classes. I was taking programming classes at my local college through my high school getting dual credit for high school and college. And then after school, I went to a, uh, a, um, a local shop to do hardware work. And I was terrible at hardware, but I just, I really got burned out on software and computers and everything in high school because of all of that. And I uh, ended up uh, going to college for my second passion, which was music and really the audio engineering, sound recording technology side of things. I've had a ton of fun doing that. All of my knowledge with software and computers and hardware and everything directly played into the sound engineering and the technical aspects. And so I was, I was pretty good at what I did. And how did that connection work between um, knowing how to code and knowing how to do so audio engineering? The, uh, the understanding of, of electronics, basically, um, 
get the 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 knowledge of of logic and pathways and and the way information flows from point a to point b it it it's hard to describe in in abstract terms for me but when it when it comes down to it the ability to see the way software should work and the way information flows through software is quite similar to the way sound flows through wires because at the end of the day it's all electrons and when you can get to the idea of i'm pushing electrons ones and zeros through wires, you can kind of sort of abstract that into the way sound recording technologies work. And just in general, you're you're dealing with technology. So if you deal with software, you, you probably deal with a little bit of hardware, um, at least with your laptop and monitor and things like that. And then the ability to go into a recording studio and know, you know, okay, this is an input, this is an output, you know, these things connect together. And then the ability to wire things up, it, it starts to make sense really quickly for, for somebody that's already got a technical nature. That's really interesting. It reminds me of a um, great courses course I watched once on uh, information theory. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a sort of direct connection made in, in a way not, not quite as well said as you put it, but between you know the flowing of electrons and the uh, management of yeah. sound information. Absolutely. Beyond that, though, there there's a lot of theory around musicians being hardwired similarly to software developers. If you go back to the 1950s, when IBM was first hiring programmers, they would they would seek out applicants that had some kind of musical aptitude. And I don't know if they ever found what the crossover in the human brain really is between music and software. But there is a direct correlation. The The way people think in music is very similar to the way people think in mathematics and in software development. You'll find that some of the best programmers out there are also really good musicians. And people that are musicians have a tendency to be very technical in nature. They can easily work with computers and figure things out. It's interesting. It makes me think of, um, you know, I think one of the combinations of proclivities that programmers and musicians might share is a combination of perfectionism and an mm-hmm. awareness that you're in an imperfect world all the time. Yeah, very much so. Um, so you've got to have a certain kind of temperament and, uh, you know, you're always looking out for something you know that's going to go wrong. Right. And, uh, even though you're a perfectionist. Right. Um, so I went, uh, Edwin, actually, I wanted to ask you, so what was your in the mid nineties, what was your first full-time software development job? Uh, full-time, if you want to count an eight to five job, uh, my first full-time job was just out of college. I only have an associate's degree. I never finished my bachelor's because I fell in love and moved halfway across the country from Denver to, to Dallas, Texas, and uh, had a, a choice to make basically finish school um, or you know, go find a job. And I decided that I was tired of school. I had been tired of school for a long time, but I loved sound recording technologies. Uh, So it was then a choice of, okay, do I find a job in, in, in a studio somewhere or in software development? And at that point, I had far more experience in software development. And I knew that it would pay more upfront, you know, I'd be able to to earn a better living 
immediately doing software compared to, to working in a studio. And after that, after I got that first job, which was in a manufacturing company, I actually worked in the marketing department of a manufacturing company. This was in 2000, right in the middle of the dot-com bust. So I was I was pretty lucky to get the job I did because we survived the whole dot-com bust with with, with growth in the company. It was it was a manufacturing company making HVAC equipment. So any kind of construction in commercial buildings basically is was supporting the business that I worked for. So I didn't really have to deal with the whole dot-com bust. I just kind of wrote it out at this company. And, you know, 2006 comes around and I have better options at other places, so I move on. But it was, it was a good job uh, for me at the time. I learned a lot being my first full-time job. But I, I, you know, like I said, I had um, six, six, you know, three years full-time equivalent experience, really six years of doing it part-time prior to that, working for, you know, internet service providers, doing tech support, building web pages for them, uh, doing some stuff on my own, building small web applications for small businesses like a, a, a realtor agency, um, a couple of different band websites that I did over the years. You know, a number of different things that I did working at a local college with their intranet back in the, the late 90s. So a lot of different experience prior to getting into the manufacturing company. And um, uh, are you an independent consultant now? Yes, I am. I've been self-employed for uh, about seven years now, six and a half to seven years. And was there something specific that triggered that in you or was it just kind of, uh, you know, natural transition kind of both um I, I didn't realize it at the time but l when i look back at my early days in the mid 90s i realize now that i had that entrepreneurial spirit the self-employment spirit and i was doing that kind of work i was you know like i said building websites for small um realty agency and for bands and for you know various other local businesses. And I was doing that mostly on my own. A little bit was done, w w a little bit of it was done through the the web um, ISP uh, hosting service that I, I worked with, but most of it was on my own. So it, when it came down to it in 2010, I think it was, um, a friend of mine had jumped ship from the company that we worked at and gone to work on a contract with Ruby on Rails. And about six months into that, uh, he he pinged me one day and said, hey, I'm looking at bringing another person onto this project doing Rails. I know you've got some, some Ruby experience, not a ton of Rails, but I see that as a benefit in this case because I can mold you the way I want you to work. And so that was really the impetus for me jumping off of full-time employment into self-employment you know, full time making making my all my income from that and being able to to support my family and everything everything like that. And how do you manage um, being independent? I know that everyone who sort of works from home um, has this challenge, and I was wondering if you have anything to say about that. I mean, how, what what are your routines to stay productive? Uh, my routine to stay productive is work whenever I am inspired to work. And when I am not inspired, I have to evaluate whether or not I need to get something done anyways. 
like uh, yesterday and today, for example, I've spent probably four hours. Um, I don't have it sitting in front of me, but I spent probably four to five hours uh, adding hardware buttons to my PlayStation 4 controller because I want to be able to use different fingers for buttons that are not easy to get to. So cool. I, I have time to do stuff like that when when I know that I need a break, when I know that I'm so focused and so intensely dug deep into something that I can't really see the big picture anymore. So it, it's it's nice being able to do that, but at the same time, it's also a huge challenge, especially when when you're talking about consulting work. Because if you're if you're doing consulting, and and client work, then you're being billed hourly. Basically, you're billing yourself hourly most of the time. And so you're trading that time for money, and if you're taking time away from that to play video games or work on hardware projects or whatever, then you're learn, earning less income. You know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say I'm fortunate now in that I have far less client work than my own products and services, which is kind of stressful and difficult. At the same time, it's very freeing and allows me to have the time to go play with PS4 controllers for you know a, a day. Yeah, I'd like to ask you about that in uh, just a couple minutes. Um, but before we do that. Um... I was wondering for, you know, anyone listening who might be thinking of making a move to being an independent consultant, how do you know what to bill yourself out at? The general rule of thumb when you first get started is to double your current hourly rate. And most people are salaried, of course, so they don't know what their hourly rate is, but it's pretty easy to calculate that. Um, basically, just take your annual salary Multiply that by two and divide that by a thousand, and that's your hourly rate. So if you make fifty thousand a year, your hourly rate. Uh, I'm sorry. Multiply that. Uh, I got that backwards. Um, take your hourly rate and. No, I think that was right. Yeah, or, or, was divide, divide it. It's divided by two is is what you should to, to get your currently hourly rate. Because if you make fifty thousand a year, you're basically making twenty five dollars an hour. That's right, because there's like 2,000-some-odd hours in a given work year considering holidays and vacations and stuff like that. Um, so you, if you're making 50, 50 grand a year, you basically make $25 an hour for you to have roughly the same take-home income as a full-time consultant. You need to work 40 hours a week at $50 an hour instead of $25 an hour. However, I don't really recommend doing it that way. Um, having having gone down that path, working 40 hours a week as an independent is darn near impossible. That's more like a 60-hour work week because there is so much overhead in managing contracts and paying taxes and dealing with the business side of your business as non-billable hours that it really becomes untenable. I, I, when I was doing full-time consulting, I tried to um, cap myself between 20 and 30 hours, closer to 20 if at all possible, which meant that I was increasing my rates even higher than, 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 than that. Um, the, the highest hourly rate I ever made was like 250 an hour for some emer emergency part-time work over a few weeks. 
my average was about 175. Uh, and then for some really long-term projects, like I've had one client for three and a half years now, which is my only client at this point, I'm charging them 110 an hour. So, but but that's you know, there's long-term stability there. I have you know, good working relationship with the people that I work with. They're friends of mine. It's been it's it's been a way for me to have a limited number of hours and be able to build my own products and services, but still have some cushion of client work while I'm doing that other work. Yeah, having a reliable client yeah. that you get along with is actually worth a lot of money. It is. It, it absolutely is. Not having to change contracts every three to six months, not having to deal with the overhead of, of all of that and the time it takes. It's, it's definitely worth something. Well, and also, you know, just like, you know, we're all human, uh, clients are all human too. Um, absolutely. With the, with the wonderful, uh, hot house variety <laughs> that comes with that. And, um, you can occasionally encounter, um, people that you don't like working with and, you know, the, yeah. uh, they're not, um, they're not worth, pretty well they're basically not worth anything you're probably likely to be paid by them yeah pretty much i've 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 had a few of those clients and it, it became pretty apparent to me how to avoid them from the get-go they are typically the people that will nitpick and argue over inane little details in contracts and and hourly rates and things like that the the people that are the most excited to work with you and are just waiting for you to tell them what you want so that they can say yes, those are the people that tend to be the best clients. But I've, I've had multiple instances where um, I've, I've had to say no because I just get that bad feeling of, wow, these guys are really getting picky and really getting strict. And there was one particular instance where I was I was going to legitimately make like $15,000 for three days worth of work. It was on-site training. It was going to be super simple. I had done it before for a half a dozen other companies. And these guys wanted to pay me more than anyone else ever had, which was great until they started getting really picky about the non-compete in their in their contract that they used they basically told me in the in the contract that i was not allowed to be in business anymore i mean it was it wasn't intended to be that way but they were a consulting firm doing software development for other industries and other companies which was my business and their non-compete basically said I was not allowed to compete with them for any business. Well, you know, in the legal sense, in the legal terms, they could have put me out of business just by saying, hey, we're going to bid on that contract. You can't do it. Yeah, that um, uh, sounds like nonsense. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, one individual operating alone against a company that can afford $50,000 right. for three days of training. Um, right. It doesn't sound like much of a... Uh, competition to be worried about, especially if you think the person's worth that much to your company. Yeah, absolutely. And and when it came down to it, I wasn't really bothered so much by that clause. I wanted them to change it. And my lawyer wanted them to change it. It's, it's common. It's expected that you're going to have things that you want changed in the contract. But when I suggested the changes, that's when the red flag started flying. 
because the guy that I was working with just would not let it go and was telling me about how my lawyer lawyer was just trying to get more money out of me by, by making me do this and talk to him more and how they were the ones that stood to lose out, not me, because I was only a one person business and they were so big and and no, I'm I'm done. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh switching gears, um when I was preparing for this uh interview, um I was surprised to come across something that uh, hadn't been apparent from the beginning, which is that you created Marionette JS. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, I sort of saw a hint of it somewhere and then I saw that you wrote the introduction to, um, a book by David Sulk called yeah. Backbone Marionette JS, a gentle introduction, which is, yeah, he's got, he's a got a, that's been a very successful book on lean pub. Um, yeah, absolutely. He's, he's got several books on, on lean pub and, they were all quite well done, and I was really happy to to support him in his efforts writing those books. Yeah, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what Marionette is and how you got started uh, creating it. Yeah, um, so the the same contract that launched me into the independent life, I was working with a good friend, and we were writing absolutely terrible JavaScript for browsers, just garbage, and, and neither of us could stand it. It was just a, a jQuery spaghetti mess. Uh, and so one day he, he comes to me and says, Hey, I'm going to spend the next week looking at three or four different JavaScript frameworks so that we can write better code. And at the end of that week, he came back and showed me backbone, uh, backbone JS. This is 2010, mind you. So this is the early days of backbone, like 0.3. It was, it was in use. People were talking about it, but it wasn't super big yet. Um, and so he shows me backbone JS and I almost instantly fell in love with it because I recognized the the potential for building the same types of code patterns that I had been writing inside of WinForms applications in .NET for years. So the the idea that I could do this in JavaScript in the browser and have the, you know objects that represented views and and forms and and user data and all of this kind of stuff and be able to coordinate it was very appealing. And so I started writing a lot of backbone code. And as I'm, as I do when it, with anything new that I'm learning, when I, when I figure something out, when I have an idea, when I see something successful, I blog about it. And so I was writing all these blog posts about backbone and answering a lot of questions on stack overflow. And that got, um, the attention of a lot of people that were looking for backbone consulting. So I was able to effectively double my hourly rate from that contract to the next contract in order to uh, do pure backbone JS work, get, getting out of Ruby entirely. And it was in this the second contract, which was uh, like a, a property rental, vacation rental um, service that people use for, for really high-end luxury um, uh, vacation rentals. Um, through that contract, I started to recognize the repetition of what I was doing in Backbone. Like, hey, I, I literally copied and pasted this code three times across three different Backbone views. I wonder if I could build a simple abstraction so that I wouldn't have to do this. And just recognizing those abstractions that I was constantly using and looking for, or, or, or the, the patterns that I was constantly using and looking for ways that I could build abstractions on top of Backbone is what really led me to to create Marionette. I very intentionally kept 
the backbone philosophy of being a small library of useful pieces that you can put together yourself, which made a lot of people really happy and made a lot of people really confused because I gave almost no guidance on how to use all of these pieces. I just gave you the pieces as if you had a box of Legos and no real instruction set to, to follow. And how did you build a community around it? That kind of happened organically through Stack Overflow and my blog. People kept finding what I was writing and what I was building. And I started seeing the growth on GitHub stars and GitHub issues and feature requests. And, you know, eventually it turned into something incredibly large, something that I wasn't really able to manage on my own. Uh, and I, I had to start getting help from people and, and start pulling in you know, additional um, additional ways of managing the community in terms of what what a pull request should look like and what features should and should not be included and how to build and test and you know building a website and getting a logo designed and you know all the things that are involved in running a legitimate project instead of just some hobby thing that I'm doing for my own client work. And um, at a certain point, you decided to start producing content, um, yep. books and screencasts. Uh, you've got email courses. You've got a webinar coming up. Mm -hmm. um, you do a lot of podcasts. And I wanted to sort of address that as kind of uh, talk to you about that as kind of a single issue because this is a big right. move, a big decision for someone to make in their, in their career. And what was it that um, inspired you to start? doing this kind of thing? It was, it was really backbone. It was the experience that I had in, in blogging and working with backbone. I I've been blogging since 2004. Those old blogs from years ago don't exist anymore. So I don't have any verifiable evidence of that, but I, I, I can, I can, you know, talk about the kinds of posts that I was writing back then and, and all, and the garbage that I wrote. But you know, through the years, I developed my own voice in my writing. I was able to um, get some uh, speaking gigs with uh, various conferences um, in the, the you know, 2008-2009 era, which led to some magazine articles, which, you know, went to an actual editor and improved my writing style and voice and everything else. And, and through all of this, I just kept taking these you know, one step at a time, these, this really organic growth to the content that I was writing until I came to, I think it was 2010, I'm sorry, 2011, maybe early 2012, when I realized that I had all of this knowledge of how Backbone and Marionette worked and, and, and how they were built and why I built things the way I did. And I wanted to share that knowledge with, with, you know, pretty much the whole world. So I, I started writing um, what became Building Backbone Plugins, my first publication with LeanPub. I started writing it. I wrote a few chapters. I had a basic outline. I kind of sort of shopped it around to a few publishers and didn't get a whole lot of interest from publishers. But I had a ton of interest from the community. People kept asking me the why questions. And I really wanted to answer those why questions on Backbone and Marionette. So eventually I, I I was I was basically just sitting at my at my computer one day looking at these five chapters that I had written like a year and a half ago, going, 
I, I, I either need to, you know, publish this or just, you know, toss it out there for free for anybody to, to get as blog posts. And so that's when I found LeanPub, actually. Um, I was like, all right, there's this thing called LeanPub. I've seen it a few times. People have said really good things about it. I think I'm going to give it a try. You know, if, if I can get a few people to buy this crappy five-chapter version of this book, maybe that'll be motivation enough to, to finish it. And so I published it through LeanPub, and I put it up there for like $5, and I blogged about it and talked about it on Twitter and whatnot, and it started selling. And it started selling, and it started selling. And that was incredibly motivating when people started giving me money for, for what they knew was only five poorly written chapters. You know, that right there was a sign, hey, I, I really need to put some effort into this. And so I spent like another year and a half or so um, actually finishing that book and learning how to to market it and sell it. And from there, at kind of kind of at the same time, kind of as, as a result of that, um, I got connected with Pragmatic Programmers through, through a friend on Twitter. And they uh, contracted with me to write um, uh, or to produce screencasts on Backbone.js, which I had done, you know, audio video production previously with with college and everything. So I was familiar with how how to get it done. Uh, so I went and bought the microphone that I'm currently using, um, uh, which has been a beast of a microphone lasting all these years and uh, sat down and made a lot of mistakes and had to record the material three times over for various reasons and pushed that out there and started selling stuff through pragmatic programmers. And that was really what got me started with Watch Me Code was the realization of, hey, you know what? I've got all these other bits and pieces of JavaScript and, and whatnot that I'm building. And I bet people would really like to see the problem that I just solved in a screencast. Let me see if I can record this, edit it, and put it up for sale on my own. Yeah, thanks for that. That's a really um, well-told and uh, uh interesting story um uh it's often i find it's often hard you know to get uh such a clear narrative from people <laughs> um uh it's um an example of it i find is often uh you know if someone has become say a famous film director you know you're like right. how did you do it and they're like well i worked really hard and then one day i was famous is often how this yeah, comes out it's, um, exactly but i it's... um i once came across quentin tarantino's story um, where he says, oh, well, I was working, you know, normally you'd think, oh, I was working at a video store and then I was, you know, the director of Reservoir Dogs. But no, what right. happened was he had a friend whose wife was in a uh, gym membership along with, I think, Harvey, Harvey Keitel's partner. Right. Um, and then, so he gave his screenplay to his friend who gave it to his wife who took it to the gym, <laughs> who gave it to Harvey Keitel's, you know, girlfriend. Right. Um, as I remember the story, who then gave it to Harvey Keitel, who then got in touch. So it was actually like, you know, it's 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 interesting when you actually get the straight story. So in your case, yeah. it's like you had this, you, you sort of built Marionette um, yeah. and, and how that came out. And then you made a book that was, you know, published while it was in progress. But you realized there was a real need for the mm -hmm. information that you had. Um, and then you um, moved on to, you know, got contacted by the Prags and then uh, moved on to screencasting with all the experience you had in audio engineering in the past to back you up. So that's a really, um, really good story. Um, I actually wanted to ask you, I, I've got a, a question about that. Um, uh, but before I move on, I wanted to, um, there are a couple of, there's a blog post I wanted to ask you about because it's so great, the story um, okay. called um, The Obvious Answer. 
and right. you talk about the experience of first responder firefighter friend of yours had um, releasing <laughs> yes. a child from uh, 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 the bars of a patio. Uh, yeah, it, it, exactly what it was. He was he had his head stuck between the bars of the of the the railing on the patio. Right, and yeah, I, I just if you could tell the story because it's just so great. So the the story goes, my friend was an EMT worker. Uh, he he was um, called out to a house one day with a child stuck in the railing of the patio. And he, he he and his EMT crew get out there. The fire department had already been there for quite a while. Um, they were they were just about ready to use the jaws of life to to bust apart this fence in order to the the railing on this on this patio in order to get this kid out safely. They had spent several hours attempting everything they could possibly think of. They poured oil all over the kid's head. They used industrial strength grease. They had people trying to pry the bars of the railing just far enough away so that they could actually get the kid's head through. Nothing was working. They, they really didn't want to bust up the railing because, you know, it's an expensive railing on this patio and, and it would, they, they would have to pay for it essentially. But they didn't really feel like they had a choice. And so my, my friend is looking at the situation thinking there's got to be a simple solution for this. How did this kid get his head stuck in here? And when he started thinking, you know, what from, from, from the, the opposite perspective of how to get him out and started thinking about how did he get in, you know, it, it clicked. And he turns to, to the group of firefighters and, and EMT workers and he says, all right, 50 bucks from each of you says that I can get this kid out in the next two minutes without damaging anything, without pouring more anything on him. And they're all laughing at him going, yeah, right, whatever. And so they're all like, yeah, sure, okay, you're on. And so he walks over to the kid and says something like, hey, uh, I have one more thing that I want to try before we break out the jaws of life and tear apart the fence to get you out of here. But before I try this, I need you to turn your body sideways and, you know, step, push your body through the railing so that I can try what I'm going to do. And so the kid turns his shoulder down, puts his shoulder through the railing and, Oh, look, his head's not stuck anymore because he had, what, what had happened is the kid had, tried to go through the railing to begin with. He got his body through the railing, but his head was too big to fit. And so he was struggling, pushing against the rail, trying to get his head through and freaking out because his head was stuck. He couldn't get his head through. And so in his panic, he didn't realize that his body is what fit through in the first place. He thought his head was stuck. And so his mom calls 911 and you know EMT and fire department and everything come out. And in reality... It wasn't that he couldn't get out. It was how he got in that ended up creating the solution. Yeah, that's just such a that's just such a great metaphor for something that I don't know what it is yet. But um, you know, <laughs> absolutely, you see the kid with his head stuck, and you just naturally think he stuck as he got his head through there right. instead of he backed in. He got his body yeah. through there. Um, that's just yeah. Changing changing perspectives like that is. Something that is incredibly difficult to do, but often so important. If you can ask the question from the 
from the opposite perspective, not how do we get him out, but how did he get in? Yeah. And then, then the answer can become obvious in some cases. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, uh, in philosophy, there's this idea of looking for the necessary conditions for the possibility right. of what's in front of you, yeah. um, you know, which is a sort of you know, one way of, of approaching problems. Um, how did this happen? What, what has to be true in order for this problem to exist in the first place? Right. Um, and often you can, or, and, and all, another way of looking at it too is what would, what would have to be true in order for me to be able to solve this problem? Yeah. Um, and so you can actually start with the answer um, uh, rather than starting with the problem. Right. Um, and that's another way to get to a solution. Um, uh, another uh, interesting post you had um, was where you talk about the purpose of the job interview. Yeah. Um, and this is something that, this is a subject that sort of generally comes up on this podcast from time to time. Um, I was recently interviewing an author named Eric Dietrich, who mm -hmm. um, wrote in his book about the origin of the modern job interview. And it was from um, Thomas Edison, um, okay. who didn't like the fact that so many of his employees, or so few of his employees shared his knowledge of trivia, yeah. um, which he sort of generalized into, you know, they're bad employees. So he created... Right like a questionnaire and then people found out about this and that's what morphed into the modern job interview, including, <laughs> you know, riddle asking and stuff like that. Yep, um, yep. And, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what you say about the, what's going on in a job interview, what your real goal should be when you walk into one. Yeah. So the, 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 the gist of it is uh, every job you have is not there because you were the most technically skilled person. You're not getting this job. More than likely, you're not getting the job because you are the most technically skilled, most qualified person from a technical perspective. But because the people who did the interviewing with you, who, who talked to you and, and who you sat with, those people felt that you would be a good addition to the team. Now, there are going to be other cases where they literally just need the most technically technically skilled person and they hire that person no matter their personality. But most of the time, you're dealing with human beings and human beings deal with relationships. They don't deal with technicalities in, in a team environment. So when you when it comes down to interviewing, you yeah, you, you need some technical skill for whatever the job is. But ultimately, the point of the job interview is not to convince the interviewer that you have the skills necessary from a technical perspective. The point of the interview is to convince the person doing the interview that they should call you back and continue the conversation. You should not be it's, – it's similar to marketing, quite honestly. If I'm sending an email if, – if I'm launching a book, let's say – and I want to get across five different points about what's in this book. I don't send a single email with, you know, five bullet points of here's the things in this book. Instead, I send five emails, at least, probably more. But I send at least five emails. Each email will talk about one major thing from the book, one of those five points that I want to get across. But the email will be set up in a way so that by the end of the email – the person reading it will not only know about the thing that I wanted to tell them about, but they will have been introduced to the next topic in a way that makes them curious, in a way that makes them want to read more. So that when they send the next email, they will be more likely to open it and continue reading it. 
And the same thing happens in a job interview. You are essentially marketing yourself and you're marketing yourself to the company that potentially wants to hire you. So what you need to do in these job interviews is not go in there with, you know, data sheet after data sheet of all your technical skills. Yeah, you're going to need that in your resume. But what you really need to do is go in there with personality and experience and stories and relatable, understandable humanity so that you can get yourself ingratiated with the team. And the best way to do that is to become friends with the people that work at this company long before you actually go in for the interview. Speaking of, um, you reminded me of something, speaking of um, email and marketing and relatable humanity, um, you had a recent experience. Um, I was listening to a podcast from the Entre Programmers um, podcast where you sent out an email blast um, <laughs> that included a free coupon code or something for yep. that you sent to everyone rather than yeah. a specific segment. Um, yep. <laughs> as someone who, you know, we at Lean Pub, we send out email blasts too. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone, everyone who does this has that moment where the handshakes you know, right. before you click and, uh, you had an experience where you, you clicked and it, uh, uh, merited a, a bit of a shake, um, <laughs> quite a bit of one talk a little bit about that. Just so, you know, we know we're all, those of us who were engaged in this kind of activity, we were you know, all in a similar boat. Yeah. So that was, that was only, that was less than a month ago or, or approximately a month ago at the time of recording this, um, I was, I was putting on a webinar, uh, and I, had three segments of people that needed to know about this webinar. First segment was my general segment in my mailing list of people that should pay to get in. Second segment was people that had bought the pre-release of my upcoming ebook, which by the way is also published on LeanPub. Not yet published, but in right in progress on LeanPub, will be published on LeanPub. Um, those people should get in for free. Um, and then the third segment is the annual subscribers, annual members of Watch Me Code. My annual members get everything for free, uh, anything on the site anyway. Sometimes I do live stuff that they have to pay for, but it, as soon as it goes up on the site, the annual members get it for free. Uh, so I sent out this email with all of this crazy, awesome, whiz-bang, liquid template uh, code inside of my email using getdrip.com, my, my email um, service provider in my mailing list uh, service. I spent like two hours formatting this email perfectly with all of the right code in there to make sure that the right people saw the right information. It read perfectly fine. Everything was great when I sent the preview emails to myself. What I didn't check was the actual link that I included in each of those three segments. And I had mistakenly copied and pasted the link with the 100% off discount coupon from one of those segments into all three of them. So I sent out an email to 7,900 people telling them about this webinar that I was going to be doing and giving every last one of them free access <laughs> instead of just the two segments that should have had it. And, um, and then when you sent a correction. Yeah, um, that... it, it gets better. Yeah. It's... So I, 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 um, I'm a little bit OCD when it comes to sending emails. I read every email that I send. Uh, so I, I opened up my email, I clicked on the link, and I immediately saw the mistake that I had made. So panic ensues. 
I try to think of what can I do to mitigate the situation, and I realize the best course of action is to disable that discount code. So I hop onto my website, disable the discount code, immediately go back over to Drip and send an email to the two segments that should have been able to get get in for free. Or no, correction, to the one segment that should have been able to, been able to get in for free using this discount code. And I, I tell him, hey, you know, sorry about that bad link, quote unquote, in the previous email. Um, here is the corrected link. And I screwed up the corrected link. <laughs> so I sent out a second email saying, you know, that there was a bad link, but it, it was wrong. So that means I had to send a third email going, holy crap, I'm an idiot. I can't email to save my life. If you get to the, the site with this link and it still doesn't work, just put in this discount code. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I, I think we've all been there, at least in our imagination um, or our yeah. fears. Um, uh, but, um, Everybody fears doing it, that's for sure. Yeah. And, and I, I'm the guy that did it. I wanted to ask if there's anything you've changed in your process um, since then. Or, if, I mean, maybe you haven't done it again, but what, what do you think one can do to mitigate email risk like that? Uh, there, there's a couple of different things. First off, make sure you check every last link that you send out. Um, if you're including things like discount codes, you know, just, just verify, you know, have a checklist, build that checklist. Okay. I, I wrote the email. I included the links. Now I'm going to send myself a preview email and I'm going to click the link and I'm going to, you know, the, the, the checklist of, of things you need to do to make sure that it's correct. Um, a friend of mine also recently launched a service called Send Check It. It's literally just sendcheckit.com. Um, and his service essentially allows you to send your preview email from you know MailChimp or Drip or whoever you use. You send it to a special email address at his service, and it will do a lot of the error checking for you. It'll make sure that your um, links are actually going to a valid page. It'll make sure that you don't have, you know, hello, you know, star bar F underscore name bar star, you know, it, the, the kind of templating tags that services use. It'll check for missing images. It'll check for, you know, a, a swath of different errors that are very common in emails. So between my own very, you know, checklist oriented mind now with making sure that I have the right link for the right segments, uh, plus using send check it. It, it turns out to be um, not that difficult to prevent these errors. I'm also changing up the way I do my marketing for my webinars, and I'm not giving people free access anymore. So that that also makes that specific scenario a little bit easier. <laughs> um, normally, um, the final thing I'd like to talk about on these interviews is um, uh, your experience self-publishing and using LeanPub, and you've already described yeah. a little bit about that with your yeah. book. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, marketing. Um, how do you, yeah. how do you, this is something that all, you know, self-published authors are interested in. How do you, how do you, I mean, I know that you've spoken at conferences and you've mm -hmm. developed something on your own called Marionette. Um, what other things do you do to increase your profile and, and get your, um, books in front of people? Uh, the, the number one thing that you need to do, if you, if you think that you're going to have something you want to sell five years from now, or if you've already built it, well, you're a little behind the game. But 
if you if you have something to market or you know you want to market something at some point in the future, the number one thing you need to do is build your mailing list. You need to have a way to get people's email addresses into a mailing list with, you know, getdrip.com or MailChimp or, you know, whatever email mailing list service you want to use. But that is absolutely 100% the most important thing to do because those people on your mailing list, those are the people that have already told you that they want to know more about what you're doing. And those are the people that are going to be the most likely to buy whatever product or service you, you happen to be selling. Beyond that, marketing is is like the biggest challenge that I have in my career right now. I'm terrible at it in spite of the successes that I've had. I've I've most more often than not stumbled into success instead of engineered success and I'm working to correct that. You know, constantly improving what I'm doing in my marketing efforts, but unless you have that mailing list, you're you're going to have a very hard time selling products. Yeah, actually, that reminds me, you had another post recently, um, you know, speaking of, you know, challenges one faces in what one's doing, especially when one's very independent, and you had an issue with focus, mm-hmm. um, uh, where I think what happened was you started to really question what you're doing, um, <laughs> just just generally. Um, and I think a lot of, I mean, we all face that from time to time. In your right. situation, you know, you've, you've chosen this very independent path. Um, and so a crisis of focus, it can be, you know, perhaps more difficult. I don't know, maybe easier, but um, uh, it's unique um, to be uh, independent and then facing yeah. a crisis of focus. And I was wondering, I mean, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about what that was like and how you came through it. It's, it's an incredible challenge, the focus, because... As a software developer working for a company, the, you really only need to care about what's the next feature that the project manager told me to work on, or what's the next bug that I'm fixing, or what's the next framework that I need to be researching so that I can implement these features. Now, it's, it's a very singular-minded focus. It's all the technical, the implementation details, the software side of things. But as, an, as a self-employed person, well, now I need to focus on the implementation details because I still write software, but I also need to focus on the features because now I have to gather requirements from my clients. And now I need to focus on the business because I need to make sure that I'm going to actually get paid, that I'm going to have another contract when this one ends, that I'm going to have you know all these different things. And now I'm selling products and services on my own. Well, okay, great. Now... I need to introduce marketing to the to the to the list of things that I need to focus on. And when I wrote that that post on focus, I think I was running two three separate businesses. I had my consulting business, I had my watch me code business, and I had a, a, a podcast hosting business, which ultimately I ended up shutting down the podcast hosting business, not because it wasn't viable. I still believe that it that it was a viable service, and I've seen a lot of great podcasting hosting podcast hosting services pop up in the last year or so. And so I I know that it is still a viable business, but I had to choose where I was going to place my focus. And I chose to drop the podcast hosting so that I could grow Watch Me Code and grow my business as a singular thing instead of being ripped apart in three different businesses 
which each have six different concerns that I need to deal with. And um, did you have colleagues, you know, people who do, who've chosen a similar path to yours that you could consult with during that time when you were thinking about, you know, yeah. what should I do? Okay. Yeah, that's, that's the Andre Programmers podcast. That, that, that is our mastermind group. If, if you're not familiar with the idea, a mastermind group is basically entrepreneurs that get together virtually or in person, uh, usually once a week, sometimes less, sometimes more but typically once a week to talk about their struggles and bounce ideas off each other and just generally to be a support network. And I just happen to be fortunate enough to, to, to be able to broadcast my uh, mastermind group to the world through the Entree Programmers podcast. We are all very open about what we do and, and the struggles and triumphs and that's really the the unique angle that we have for our podcast is we share everything about our business with the world, success and failure and struggle and otherwise. We're not just we're not just there to talk about the happy path and how things are great, but to really show people what the entrepreneurial life is like. Um, my last question is, uh, if there were one thing we could build for you, or one thing we could fix on LeanPub. Um, what would that one thing be? Is there something missing? Um, um hmm, that's that's a tough question, honestly. Um, I think the one thing that might still not work correctly from from seven years ago when I started using LeanPub is back matter. Oh yeah. The 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 back matter tag doesn't work to, to the best of my knowledge. I would really like the back matter tag to work. And what would you like it to be doing specifically so I, I understand? I, well, the, 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 the front matter gives me, um, you know, the appendix and the introduction, and it uses Roman numerals and things like that. Then there's the, the main matter, which is your chapters and sections and, and stuff like that, which, you know, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, with, with actual page numbers. Back matter is typically your, your, um, index and your appendices and you know i i want i want the, the appendix a appendix b appendix c kind of the, the 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 typical numbering of back matter instead of continuing you know chapter uh, append you know chapter 37 appendix a well no it's not really chapter 37 it's it's appendix a it should have its own numbering scheme which is what I thought Backmatter was supposed to do back when I first started working with LeanPub. But it, it, there was a bug or an undefined feature or something, and it, it just never worked. I don't even know if it's documented anymore. I just It used to be documented, and it was a known problem, and I don't know if um, – I, I have no idea. If that's not working as documented, then that is something we will definitely look into fixing. I don't even – yeah, I, I honestly don't know if it's still documented. Maybe it was a feature that, that, yeah, no, it's that still, LeanPub it's, decided to kill. No, no, it's still there in the manual. Um, so anyway, okay. thanks thanks for pointing that out. I mean, whether whether it's been fixed or not, there's obviously something about – at least about messaging that we need to fix yeah. with that. So Right. Um, well, I wanted to say um, thanks for a great interview, Derek. That was really good. We covered a lot of – ground and it was really uh, yeah. interesting to hear about uh, your path and how you've got to where you are. Um, so thanks very much for being on the Lean Pub podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Yeah, really appreciate it. I absolutely love Lean Pub. As I said before, I've got the four books published there. Um, I don't mind sharing my numbers. My my Backbone Plugins book alone brought in more than $20,000 in revenue for me 
you know, that's that's after fees and 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 everything else goes goes to lean pub. So that's you know a phenomenal amount of of income over the years where where that book was was really a viable book in in the marketplace. I'm working on my next ebook, which is going to be about uh, Docker, you know, deploy developing Node.js applications in Docker. I'm expecting that to do really well on LeanPub. Uh, my two RabbitMQ books are extremely popular these days. They are widely considered to be two of the best RabbitMQ books out there, and I'm extremely happy to have published it through LeanPub because LeanPub makes it so incredibly easy for me to write and publish these books. Well, thanks for the kind words and um, best wishes on success with uh, your new book and all your new projects. Thanks for, for, for that, and thanks again for having me on the podcast. Thanks.